Welcome to Antidotes, your weekly medical stories podcast with your host that introduces herself, Christine. That would be me. And I don't know why I'm now talking in the third person. I'm going to stop that because that's so obnoxious. Anyways, I am trying to get better about introducing myself. So that is why. Welcome. I'm so glad you're back. We have another awesome guest this week. My background in EMS has always been in urban EMS. I've worked in large cities, very low income areas where the issues that I encountered in EMS are not typical of a lot of the country if you're not working in an urban environment. So it's very exciting to have someone on that has had a different experience than me because EMS varies so greatly across the world and just across the United States. So today I have Paul who has done rural EMS in Maine. Welcome, Paul. Hey, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so I've been practicing up where the banjos are pretty loud, but <laughs> it's been mad fun. I definitely don't regret like a minute of it definitely been like a huge change from where I came from. You made a little bit of a joke about banjos. I think people that are not from New England don't understand that rural New Hampshire and rural Maine can have this like southern hillbilly, not hillbilly, but this kind of rednecky feel to them. Oh, yeah. Very, as far as New England goes. Very definitely so. It's kind of like the Wild West to the north a little bit. Yeah. Once you go to Bangor. <laughs> the, wild, the wild north. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So how did you get into rural Maine EMS? You said you, it's far from where you were. Where were you? All right. So uh, before I got into emergency medicine, my past life and career, I was a designer out in California trying to uh, live that office life. And I ended up pretty much having a quarter life like melt down because I was just like, oh my God, I'm wasting all my time behind a desk kicking out a bunch of designs for like mobile games, right? It paid really well, but oh, yeah, it was very monotonous work. So uh, my dad was like, hey, uh, why don't you try emergency medicine? He's a doctor himself, uh, an emergency physician has been so for about like 25 years now, just like scary to think. But yeah, uh, he invited me to come on up and like worst comes to worst, you know, I go back to design work, no big deal. And I ended up, yeah, in northern Maine, uh, like any good millennial back with my uh, parents, in this case, my dad, <laughs> and uh, got my EMT license. And I, God, I have not looked back at all. Like, I absolutely love it. Um, in a lot of ways, I've been more creative as a uh, EMT and paramedic than I even was as like a designer behind a desk. So you are actually a paramedic. You went through paramedic school, correct? Yes. Yeah. And how long have you been a paramedic? So I am just now coming on up on a first finished complete year being a paramedic. As of November 5th, that'll be like one complete year. It has been absolutely freaking wild. <laughs> it's been almost like a different like job description and still zero regrets. Absolutely love it. Like already, you know, having kind of like a college background and whatnot, when I took my EMT basic course, I remember very clearly like, oh, oh boy, this is the tip of the iceberg. Like this goes so much deeper. Like yeah. we can yeah, really dive this rabbit hole. Yeah. That's how I felt when I took my EMT course. I mean, I did mine in high school. My high school offered it, which was actually, oh, I think, cool. didn't you, you knew my sister. Yeah. That's how, how did you know my sister? So um, I think I was a part of the same homeroom as your sister. We may have had like a couple of classes together, but we, yeah, uh, we graduated like same year and Okay. So I did EM the EMT school 
Is that where you did it too or no? No. Um, so I took my first EMT course at the ripe young age of 25. Ah, okay. Doing like an accelerated course. It was just like it lasted the summer pretty much. It was just like EMT boot camp pretty much. Okay. And uh, I had an absolutely incredible instructor and she really kind of sparked like a passion for the medical side. Like I know some people are like trauma junkies. I love weird medical cases. Uh, The more complicated kind of the better. (laughs) I know it probably sounds weird, but. No, I totally feel you. When I was in EMS, I was like, yeah, I love trauma and I love the blood and guts. And then I found that the medical cases were really interesting. And when I went and got my NP, I was like, oh, I don't want to do primary care. Primary care is so boring. You're just going to be handing out blood pressure meds. And that's not the case. The really cool thing about primary care is that you get to do these complex workups for medical problems. And everyone thinks that in primary care, oh, you just do the basics and then you hand people off to specialists. But when people have really complicated issues and you don't know what is wrong with them, your primary care provider, your internal medicine docs and PAs and NPs, we are the ones that are doing that initial workup to see which specialist you should be going to. Because if we don't know if it's your endocrine system, if we don't know if it's you know, renal, if if we don't know that it's cardiology, if we don't know if it's neuro, we can't send you to that specialist until we know and we have the diagnostics to back it up because they're going to go, well, what the hell do you want me to do? And when we have a complicated patient and we send them to specialists and the specialist's like, nope, this part of the body's fine. Their kidneys are fine. They wipe their hands of them and then they send them back to primary care. And um, I had this really I have this super, super awesome boss who is a geriatrician, and he says people kind of shit on primary care, but when all the specialists don't know, they just send them back to us, and it's our job to take the next step and figure out where do we go from here because the patient has to do something. We have to keep going, and that's been really a rewarding and fascinating part about internal medicine, and I've had some really interesting cases that I've been able to follow over multiple months of just these complex workups. And it's all medical. It's not trauma. Trauma, you know, there's a hole, you plug the hole, you give them more blood and you stitch them back up. But yeah, the medicine is, I'm going on this tangent. but the- <laughs> It's perfectly fine. Yeah. The, I love, I do love the complicated medical workups. They're really great. Yeah. Especially like when you're kind of the first person there, you're like, you're first hearing about this, I'm sure as like a nurse practitioner, the like, say you have a patient that really opens up to you like, oh my God, like all X, Y, and Z is going on, right? And I have no right. clue why. Right. Like you get to do the initial like shine kind of a floodlight, not a laser onto the issue, but a floodlight and like right. get all the pieces of the puzzle and begin like figuring out where even like the border pieces are versus like, you know, the center pieces, right? Right. Like short as a breath you know, why are they having shortness of breath? That could be so, is it a pulmonary embolism? Is it an effusion? Is it pneumonia? Is it asthma? Is it heart failure? I mean, is it cancer? There's so many things that can be causing one symptom. And if it's the first time they're presenting, whether it's acutely for a paramedic or subacutely, but still pretty seriously in internal medicine, it's it's really fascinating to tease out what's going on. Oh, absolutely. And actually in one kind of wacky case, I ended up taking a blood sugar on this individual and they were up over 400, no history of being a diabetic. Mm, well, now they are. Right? <laughs> that that changed the picture a little bit. And I was like, oh, 
Okay. <laughs> oh. oh my. Well, so- sometimes you you go in going, yep, this is textbook disease A. And then you look at the diagnostics and you go, oh, I was so wrong. It's something else. And you have to remember to not get tunnel vision and keep your mind open. I had a case actually that I'm currently in the process of working up and I can't really talk too much about it because of privacy, but I definitely thought it was a malignancy. I thought it was, but it's actually um, kind of a weird infectious disease thing. And wow. okay, I'm still, still not can, there's, there's an infectious disease test that was positive, but like their liver enzymes were normal. So I'm not convinced that's what's causing all these symptoms. So I'm going to have to go down the rabbit hole a little bit further on this. And it's, it's going to take a while to figure out what's going on, but it's interesting. I'm very intrigued. <laughs> right. Like something really deeper to kind of like chew on. Right. Yeah. So they're, they're not going to be going to oncology. They may go to GI. Maybe they'll go to infectious disease. Right. I don't know yet. I'm not sure. I can't give this person to a specialist yet because they're going to just go, nah, go back to your primary care. <laughs> right. Well, that's like the whole thing with specialists as well. They're, re- they're really, really, really good at the one thing that they do, right? Like they've got a laser beam that they can focus in on something. Yeah. Which is cool, like especially when it's like the right time for them. Yes. So tell me about some of the things that are kind of unique to working in a rural system. So working in a rural system, I want to say like the first thing that just jumps to the forefront of my mind is transport times really, really become a thing. That's so funny that you mentioned that because I recorded with Casey this morning, actually. So there goes going to air in like a couple of weeks. And I just mentioned how we we're like, oh my God, it was such a long transport time. It took us eight minutes to get there. Oh, <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to be recording with someone in Maine. I feel like they're going to have an interesting reaction to that. <laughs> yeah. Eight minutes would be extremely fast unless we're doing something literally just in the middle of town. But oftentimes our sickest patients would be, you know, out in the will, like the willy wax, like, you know, as they refer to as freaking God's country, <laughs> way out in the woods. You can get these survivalists, right? They want nothing really to do with civilization. That's why they're out there in the first place. And uh, usually like it can be a relative that'll call 911 for them. But by the time that like they've actually called 911, you can like, depending on the area that we get dispatched to is like, we can pretty much expect if we get anything from this area, it's going to be pretty serious. Yeah. Because these people want nothing to do. They don't want to rely on anyone else. And you're probably not just like, say, a few hours behind the curveball. You're probably like a couple days behind the curveball. Like this person probably should have been in the hospital a good while ago. Yeah. And how long is your average response time? What are we talking about? I mean, we said eight minutes is long. Are we talking an hour, 30 so minutes? So average response time, I would say further out, like, God, there's some places it could easily be like, 20 minutes to almost like half an hour or two, right? Okay. So that's definitely a thing to take into consideration, like when you get called for that chest pain, right? It's like, oh man, it's like another 20 to 30 minutes before we're even out there. And that's in good weather. This is Maine. Yeah, that this is all assuming we have great weather, which as you just said, it's Maine. It's not always the best weather. <laughs> but yeah, once we're there, there's also like, we end up on these places. They may or may not have electricity. They may or may not be plowed, right? Like, so even just getting to like the residence is like its own 
game. Yeah, I'm sure there's not like paved roads and the survivalists. Yeah, like we end up on these like back kind of camp roads quite frequently. And yeah, you got to make sure like you don't go backing into a tree or something. (laughs) So you do have a couple of stories that you wanted to talk about. What's the first one? I want to say the majority of what we deal with is they are sicker than they probably normally ever would have been because they're just so isolated and usually don't want to call for uh, help unless they absolutely need it. As far as moose attacks, I can't say I've had any like violent moose attacks. <laughs> However, there is usually the once to twice a year obligatory um, moose strike where someone you know hits a moose in their vehicle. Yeah. Those are... Pretty much always messes. And I only heard this as rumor when I first moved to this section of Maine, like that moose had like this matte fur and their eyes were not reflective. Well, apparently that's very true. I've actually had a moose jump out in front of the ambulance. Uh, We were getting back from this really long transfer. And yeah, this thing came right over the side of the road. Never would have seen it. And we're lucky we didn't hit it ourselves. Yeah, so uh, what I can say is if anyone plans on vacationing up there, going to Mount Katahdin and hiking the beautiful area, don't go 80 miles per hour at night. Kindly refrain from that. Because moose are not reflective. Not really. They're (laughs) fur kind of, it's like this deep kind of mat that just absorbs light and their eyes don't reflect back. Hmm. This podcast will be titled Moose Facts. (laughs) Yeah, right? Interesting moose facts. But that's uh, how people end up just hitting them and they will just kind of, you know, come lumbering out of the woods and they have no yeah. sense. They're not worried about that. They haven't right. evolved cars. so Well, they're the biggest thing around. Like, why would they be afraid of anything? Right? Uh, they're not normally like used to having to be afraid of anything. And uh, they're definitely a lot bigger than a deer. Yeah. How about any like particularly significant traumas or interesting medical cases that you've had? So it was literally a dark and stormy night. Okay. In like, oh God, maybe it was like late September, October, kind of full moon. So it's probably like 20 degrees because it's October in Maine, right? Yeah. Well, it wasn't um, 20 degrees. It was like right on that borderline. Everything's just like sopping wet. and uh. but it's, it's cold. <laughs> yeah, it's cold. Like it's that bitter kind of raw cold and like winds kind of whipping and howling and we get called this is always a red flag when dispatch has to like wait up gather themselves and then like try and like work through what they're about to say okay yeah right like that's always like red flag number one we got dispatched to uh a this was actually is one of my traumas someone that fell from a tree Mm -hmm. and then it got updated to fell from a tree possibly unconscious and uh yeah, they they like changed it a couple of times and they said, you're going to Unknown Lake. I'm like, oh, this is good. Literally Unknown Lake. Did I hear this right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I heard it right. So um, this is a place that literally is not on GPSs. It's not on like, it's on a couple of old like logging maps that now I guess like hunters are using as just like bear hunting territory. Okay. It took us about, God, I want to say like 45 plus minutes to even get on scene for this did end up calling life flight due to just like the nature of what was going on and like how far out we needed to go. This like, it ended up being somewhere like we had to go through like the quote unquote County to find this quote unquote, there's like upper and lower Lake. Yeah. It turned out life flight wasn't flying just due to the weather, which makes sense. It was God awful weather. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so met the game wardens on scene, and actually one of my favorite providers. He was an EMT basic at the time. He finally got his advanced license. He's this like old veteran dude that uh, is a bear hunter himself, and just classic northern Mainer. Like nothing bothers this guy. <laughs> like super, super kind of cool and calm. So we hike further. We get out of the ambulance, pouring rain. Hike into the woods to go find this uh, character. You know, we've got like fire crew with us, and. Um, end up finding a, well, at that point it was a body in a uh, bear sled. What is a bear sled? A bear sled. So it is a makeshift sled. In this case, it was, it looks like an old plastic, uh, like chemical barrel that had been split in half lengthwise. Okay. And then attached to like a skitter kind of thing. Okay. Like a couple pieces of wood attached to like the bottom. So they can literally, if they do get a bear, they can drag it out of the woods. Okay. Things we did not have in the city no no that's probably not one for the city and i think this was um so i was still in advanced at the time actually i wasn't a paramedic when this happened but yeah no we got on scene and i just remember like in like that eerie kind of like spotlighting kind of coming from one of the cops like flashlights this you know just the image of this uh, guy and his head like twisted to the side like his friend in a panic and cut him down from this strap like his safety harness um which we'll get into later and put him in the bear sled to try and like drag him out but i think in the panic it just completely occluded the airway like the guy just slid forward mm. that's why i was like this is we're not going to code this like he's not breathing no pulse probably been that way for quite a while i mean cold yeah yeah like we're not we're not going to start coding this by coding, you mean working the arrest and yeah, working the arrest. Right. We managed to get this individual flipped over, and there is this huge hematoma around the abdomen, just colossal. And what we're thinking, so what's frustrating about this is this individual actually had the right safety equipment and chose not to use it. Instead, he uh, was up in a tree, hanging by like one of those like kind of like almost like a backpack nylon strap. Okay. Yeah, that was just like an extra length of it, right? Wrapped it around his abdomen. He must have fallen and uh, and uh, that must have cut into him and he must have just hemorrhaged out basically from there. And what we're thinking is by the time his friend found him, which was, by the way, a couple hours after this had apparently happened, he was probably in like agonal respirations at that point. This was actually legitimately kind of horrifying. And yeah. while the game wardens were off doing their thing, I was like hanging out with um, the other provider and this body in the woods for like an hour and a half at night. But he was not, he had proper safety equipment, but he was, he was using some like, just like a commercial backpack that was not a climbing backpack. Well, it's like he had one of those like nylon straps from one of those. It was just like this extra length of it. Like maybe he could have gotten it at a hardware store, had that like around his waist and probably tied to the tree. And then when he fell out of it, um, it was just such a, uh, let's see, I think there may be like an inch wide, right? So all that weight came down onto like an inch wide kind of area. And I think- Of his abdomen. Yeah, of his abdomen. And yeah, he probably like just ended up- Hemorrhaging hemorrhaging from there just internally Do, is there any idea why he was in the tree was it hunting yeah he was uh bear hunting with his friend okay yeah sorry i should have like included that this is like just images in my mind kind of like as they come no i'm sure it's very obvious that now that you say that with a bear bear sled that someone would be in a tree bear hunting but to city folk like myself i don't know why you would go in a tree but okay <laughs> right so he was probably like that for 
several hours. But yeah, so like the few traumas I've kind of gone on are actually like these where it's like just it's actually really gnarly. And, you know, it was past the point of where like, say, things are salvageable, you know, injuries incompatible with life. Yes, definitely that, you know, it was just so long to get on out there. And, you know, by the time this was even called his friend after what we believe left in a panic to go find like the nearest house like that took some amount of time to call us, which then took another like 45 minutes or so. Right. And if you're hemorrhaging in your abdomen, I'm imagining just physiologically and the anatomy of it, you have ruptured your ascending aorta or one of the femoral arteries or something that's going to be- Very easily could have. And this is like some of the risks you take going that far out into the woods. Right. You don't have immediate medical access if something bad happens. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people take these risks and like, I guess, been bear hunting before, but unfortunately, it's it's just like, please, 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 if you have the right safety equipment for something, please use it. Right. Yeah. And my reactions personally, I I wasn't so much like in horror shock myself. I get frustrated. I guess that's my way of processing through things. I get like very frustrated. It's like, oh, like, you know, like why? Like, oh, couldn't have something been done differently or. Right. Um, could have I done something better? We could have gotten there faster. Like that's a Monday morning quarterbacking, though, that it's just like more or less I try and avoid that actually mentally. Yeah, you have to because I had mentioned this to Haley when she was talking about hers, you know, you can play the what if game all day long. You can play the what if we were closer, but you can also play the what if we were further away. Exactly. The what ifs can go both ways. Yeah. And I mean, it's also, this is like the nature of emergency medicine. Not everyone is going to be able to be saved. I mean, just there are, as you said, like there's going to be injuries that are just incompatible with life. And this guy, he must've known he's been, he was a hunter for a while and like knew the risks going that far out in the woods. Yeah. So, and that's, and it was something he enjoyed doing was hunting. Absolutely. And it's, it, it's really unfortunate, obviously that he passed away and the accident happened. It's, I think we try and justify death in our heads when we work in EMS, but it's easier for me in my experience. It's always been easier to say, well, he and I'm not blaming him. I'm not at all blaming the patient. But when you process things in your mind, you kind of do blame people. And it's not in a conscious way. Like, Oh, you're right. I didn't even think uh, of it that that's way. What, that's what you get. Like, It's not in a conscious way of like, oh, that's what he gets. But it makes you get over the trauma a little bit easier when it's like, well, he didn't use the safety equipment. Or, well, they were in a gang. Well, they didn't pay their drug dealer. Well, this happened. You know, right. while they were doing this, like it makes you move on as a provider to care for the next patient a little bit easier when there's that caveat, when it's something that's totally a freak accident that is completely out of the patient's control. Like, yeah, it was a lightning strike effectively. Right. And like, I didn't even like think of it, like stop, like to take a minute and be, realize that I was like processing it in that fashion. Yeah. Oh, it's kind of like, scary (laughs) (laughs) oh no then then you i mean and it's not that's a coping mechanism it's totally a coping mechanism because when when you realize that it's oh my god this guy got struck by lightning just walking down the road and he was doing everything he should that's more terrifying for you as the provider that's when you realize like 
oh my God, it could happen to me. Because in your head, it's like, well, I'm going to always wear a helmet when I ride a motorcycle. I'm always going to wear my safety equipment. It helps you distance yourself from the trauma because you realize that you're not going to do those things. Or you can, you'll say, I would never do that. But when you're like, nope, I'm just driving down the road and something flew off a truck and struck me and killed me, which I know I've had those, I have not been to those calls, but they've happened in my cities when I was working and I know the providers that went to them. Right. You're like, holy shit, that's terrifying. That's the randomness of death that's so scary that those little justifications of blame are, they help you sleep at night a little bit. And it's, right. It's a little, it's really messed up, but it's a coping mechanism and i'm not saying this guy i deserve to die right well now i'm gonna like reprocess this whole thing because i didn't even realize i was kind of like going into that territory now i'm like oh oh god (laughs) i'm not saying it's a bad thing i'm i'm just saying it's a coping mechanism i'm just like it's just a yeah but it's just it's something we do i didn't even like think like yeah that is kind of like placing well it isn't kind of like i was like placing blame on like oh well we had like harness you didn't use it like that is placing blame like oh Oh, I mean, I mean, maybe that harness was broken. We don't. Maybe he saw that the harness was. Maybe so, but either way, you're right. It was like a freak accident, and the whole thing sucks. But, yeah, the end no, because legitimately, there's... it was an accident. There's plenty of people that uh, that climb trees without harnesses, and they're fine. There's people that like free climb rock cliffs, and they're on YouTube, and they're fine. But it's yeah. easier for us to process that horrific trauma in our minds as the medical providers when there's a little fact that says this would not happen to me because I would do something differently. And for better or worse, that helps us cope. And right. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a coping mechanism. <laughs> it's a coping mechanism, but I, I like it. I mean, my gut reaction is like, oh, that actually isn't a good thing. I, I need to like rethink <laughs> what I'm doing in my head. I'm really glad I like talked about that now though um, no that's really making me like reevaluate here because i didn't even realize that i was falling into that yeah we do it i mean we definitely do it and i think i only know that from years of ams and then going to nurse practitioner school and being in a nurse where you learn therapeutic communication and you learn mental health things and you right yeah you learn it and then you go oh that's why these call like that's why I'm okay with this call, but I'm not okay with that call. And yeah, because the truth is, like to some extent, like I'm still not okay with that call. Sure, like, it sucks. yeah, of course. Like I'm, it really sucks, and I get frustrated with myself. Like, but you know, I can't do anything. Like I can't be a help. And it's- but you know what? It's okay to not be okay with that. You're not supposed to be okay with that. You like the human brain is not supposed to see someone's head turn the wrong way and be like, this is fine. This is totally normal. Like you're not, and you're not supposed to see that amount of blood in the in someone's abdomen, and like be like, yeah, I'm gonna go to a party right now. Like that's you're not you're supposed to be empathetic towards the suffering of other humans, and that's what makes us really good caregivers when we feel that empathy. So when you get that empathy yeah. check when you see something horrible, it's it's actually a very good thing. If you become the provider that's going to those things and going meh, whatever. That's the day you need to get out of medicine because now you're no longer a compassionate provider and you need to reevaluate what you're doing. And you also need some therapy because something's gotten to you and and you need some help. So I find that the things that bothered me the most are reassuring because it's a, 
it is a recognition that I still have main, that I have maintained my humanity in all of this. Yeah, that's a really positive way of actually going about that. Um, yeah, no, for me, that was just like one of those things where it's like every fiber of my being was just like, oh, no. Oh, dear God. Yeah. So. I don't know. Like, I feel like I've actually learned a lot. <laughs> This is this has been like actually really surprisingly like educational for me, and I'm like, oh, well, that's I I wanted to learn from you, and maybe you learned my my outlook on uh, EMS and trauma. <laughs> yeah, because I'm only a few years into this too, which is I guess another maybe like aspect like when I because I am still kind of you know a year being into being a paramedic, it's like these are still kind of formative years as a provider, yeah. right? Yeah, it is. Like, I'm working towards, like, medical school. Like, that, that's what I'm trying to do now. I'm, like, going back to college and everything and using, like, being a paramedic to, like, help fund that. But And these are great lessons to learn as you advance in your medical career, too, because the more responsibility you get placed on yourself as a provider, and especially if you go through residency, and obviously I didn't do residency, but once you're a provider and, like, you go, oh, shit, there's no one above me if I fuck this up, then they die. Uh, that's a lot of stress and you have to learn to cope with it. And getting to see that in EMS, that amount of responsibility, I think it prepares you really well for being a provider, that autonomous thought, right? the decision-making, the critical decision-making. It gives you some self-confidence that even if I don't know the answer right away, I'm going to figure it out. And I, I know how to ask for help and I know when to, when to ask for help. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's what makes EMS so interesting is like, you know, you do a lot of thinking on your feet, like, you know, what are we going to do with this? You know, a lot of times like things will fall into a protocol, but yeah, you still get cases where it's like, well, hold up, hold up, hold up. What are, what am I really dealing yeah. with? What am I looking at? Yeah. But once again, that's more of a reason that like, you know, I'm excited to go to work than anything else. Like, so despite that interesting trauma that we just went over, um, I still wouldn't give up being a medic for anything at this point, <laughs> like, or just like an EMS provider in general, like I'm still at this point where I'm like learning, seeing, doing, and just kind of getting as involved yeah. as I can. Uh, that's the way to do it. That's the best experience. Just take every opportunity that comes and and get the most out of it. Yeah. So yeah, just like, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, th- uh, I guess I'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for sharing all of that stuff it was those were some great stories yeah. <laughs> thank you for giving us a little bit of a view into rural maine ems yeah no uh thank you for having me uh my pleasure like freaking awesome to be here i'm totally honored <laughs> if anyone else has stories that they want to share if you work in a ems system that is unique. If you have some cool stories that are unique to where you are in the world, please get in touch with me. I would love to interview you. You can email me at antidotespodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on social media at Antidotes Podcast Facebook. There's a page and a group. You can like us on Instagram, which is Antidotes Podcast, and then also follow us on Twitter at Antidotes Pod. I think that's all of our social media. And I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>